I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Back to school week. I love this week. I think this might be my favourite week of the year. It's very comforting because I can hear you creaking in your wooden chair. They're very creaky, your wooden chairs, or do you just have one creaky chair that you love a lot? No, I think that that might have been my creaky bones because I'm now 32. (laughs) (laughs) Happy belated birthday to Dahlia Anderton. We are recording this the day after your birthday too, which probably means there are knickers hanging off your chandelier and beer bottles at your feet. Sorry, probably Cremont bottles. Yeah, exactly that. Do you know what? Reassuringly or depressingly, I was in bed at 10 o'clock last night. So you say that like it's a strange thing to be. I think it is a bit on your birthday. It was quite weird having a birthday. I mean, look, it would have been way weirder having one of those lockdown birthdays where I was just like talking to 15 floating heads on Zoom. Um, And I'm grateful there was a bit more room for movement. But it's quite weird in this kind of post-lockdown, not yet normal world to work out what to do on your birthday because it's so impossible to go to exhibitions because they're obviously being socially distanced so you have to kind of book ages in advance all the london cinemas aren't really open um and the ladies pond again you have to book a slot now for like late september so there's nothing we need to do now in this city other than eat which i'm fine with (laughs) now would you have genuinely gone to an exhibition on your birthday Would you have gone, I'm 32 today and what I really want to do is go to the National Portrait Gallery. Is that what you're telling me you would have done on your birthday if you could? You'd have been like, I desperately need, I'm going to get told off here because I'm really shit with art and he probably doesn't reside there. But would you be like, what I need to do is I need to go see Francis Bacon? No, I probably wouldn't have done. I think it's just, it's very weird. I mean, the whole concept of leisure time at the moment, I think is being really examined because you can't, like, this is the first birthday in years where I haven't gone out dancing afterwards. Like, you can't dance anywhere. There are no rooms for dancing unless you're having an illegal rave. No, you're just your own sitting room. Yeah. And I am a big fan of, um, uh, so every day I do something called the Dougie Dance which is when you dance, preferably with a small friend, to the theme tune of Hey Dougie. Now listen, if you don't know the theme tune of Hey Dougie, give it a listen and have a little dance along before you just dismiss that out of turn.
speaking of leisure time, I have been mainly absorbed in the three S's. Let me see if you can guess. This might be a bit of a tall order because they're not necessarily immediately obvious. Um, sanding. Interesting. I've been doing a lot of painting, but no sanding, no. Okay. Soldering. <laughs> no, I mean doing any soldering. <laughs> God, you should not let me solder. That sounds quite dangerous for me to be doing. Selling sunset. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of soldering sunset. sunset. I knew I knew you would have loved selling sunset. I saw the girls yesterday and it was all they fucking talked about. It's like Love Island all over again. It spares no one as well. Everyone loves it. Do you know who it spares? Me. It always spares you. It's all right, come on. What, what, what's it about? Because they weren't very clear, actually, about what it was about because they were just too overexcited. They were just whipping each other up, shouting characters' names. So Selling Sunset is set in LA and it is about the most successful uh, real estate firm, the Oppenheim Group, in West Hollywood. And the office... The office is actually made up of, I've since found out, two tiny twin founders, Brett and Jason, and about 12... Uh, realtors, as they call estate agents over there. Um, But the three men and the only non-white woman (laughs) did not make the cut for the reality show. So it's eight unbelievably glamorous realtors in their... I think they're all in their 30s. And there's a couple of characters that have really kind of, you know, people have fallen in love with. But what is the absolute clincher is the price of the houses they are selling. It is extraordinary, as is the American obsession with having more bathrooms than bedrooms. For example, maybe like a £5 million house in West Hollywood. Guess how many bedrooms and bathrooms you get for that? $5 million. $5 million. Guess how many bedrooms and bathrooms? Um, Five bedroom, three bathroom. No, other way around. So you would get probably three bedrooms and five bathrooms. Now, I suspect that they... Well, I think they probably just think, so we think that they have, like, how can you need more than one bath or shower per person? But I, I reckon that they think that the English just don't bathe enough. Because it would be entirely normal for a house in the UK to have four or five bedrooms and one or two bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that is, like, absolutely disgusting to them. My other favourite thing about the show is that there's a character called Christine who um, has become an absolute sort of pop culture force. She has been interviewed. I mean, she was in The Times this weekend. <laughs> and she wears the most extraordinary outfits, neon green Balenciaga. And I just thought, imagine if you walked past a Martian Parsons and there was someone in the window with hair extensions down to the floor wearing um, neon pink tube socks and stilettos. Wouldn't that just be fabulous? (laughs) So boring what they wear here. I've heard, this is obviously just speculative gossip, but I think it it was Christine is the name, that you're talking about, Christine. Yeah. I think Farley said yesterday that she's going to go on I'm a Celebrity. Yeah, I I saw this. I did see this. I actually thought that I'm a Celebrity was a step down from Selling Sunset because that's where they, yeah, they go into the jungle and eat, like, kangaroo balls and stuff, don't they? Mm. Yeah, mm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't watch that one. Um, there is another one that people have been gassing about called Million Dollar Beach House, which oh, is... That? 
Oh, I think it's in like Orange County, Miami, Miami, beach houses in Miami. Um, so those are for the second homers. Um, but there is something that might resonate with you. You liked This Is Us. You loved This Is Us, didn't you? I had complicated feelings about This Is Us. I did love it, but I hated myself for loving it. Oh, no. You God, must why be... can't I just... Why that's can't not I just shame? Be... <laughs> why can't I just be straightforward about these things? I really... I, it, it evokes many the basic feelings life. in me. It's not its basicness, because I love a lot of basic stuff. It's like, it, it evoked a lot of big feelings in me, and I felt very moved by a lot of it, but I found a lot of it very cheesy. Yeah, I yeah, like, yeah. I can see it's that. It's very interesting, like, tug... I suppose everyone has this. I think a lot of like cynical British people have this, don't they? That I have this very interesting like tug of war between really being quite having quite an earnest side and being quite sincere and wanting to be moved by those things, and then it very quickly becoming absolutely repulsive to me. Yes, I wonder if that is a uniquely British thing. I I had that a lot. Weirdly, since I had children, I am completely pathetic, much more mm. earnest, very malleable. Um, probably quite a dangerous combination actually so much less cynical about stuff like that but I think even this would move you you know there's uh, the triplets in This Is Us and yeah. there's one guy I can't remember what he's called in real life but he's the actor his real life wife is called Chriselle an absolute pint size ray of sunshine and he divorces her via text in series three. Oh my god in real life mm-hmm it is devastating to watch. Oof. That mm. can't be good for him as, as for his profile as an actor. <laughs> well, I did find out. I did see some interview, because um, I did actually Google this, because I was like, what? And I, then I saw he'd done an interview, which did seem to me like, he was sort of slightly maybe trying to sound aggressively happy. I imagine he's got quite a lot of shit. When it was like, they were like, how are you? And he said... Um, I have never slept so well. I have never been so happy. I sleep like a baby. I don't have a regret. I've done nothing wrong in my life. I'm so happy. <laughs> I was like, God. Mm. <laughs> Me think the lady doth. <laughs> it's interesting. So this is just people buying second, really snazzy second homes. No, that's... So Million Dollar Beach House, which I haven't watched, um, but will relay you in full when I do, is second homes, I believe. Um, yeah. Well, also people who live primarily in a beach house, but... Um, I imagine a lot of people buy a beach house as their second home. I'm not a realtor. Um, Selling Sunset is... Uh, actually, some of them are maybe second homes, but the price goes up to, um, like, 70 million. I just think there's something really interesting that we have been stuck in our homes for months and months, and the thing that we're craving... Because it has been, like, such a smash hit, this Selling Sunset, that the thing we're really craving is watching people buy much bigger, much better homes than us. I wonder why that is. Maybe, is it because they're all on the beach? Maybe we just like looking at outside space or something. No, well, they're West Hollywood, which is not the beach. It's it's kind of the glamorous film bit. And it's a very expensive bit. I think what's also intriguing to people is that the um, houses are not... I'm trying to put it slightly more delicately than the person who wrote very expensive but very disgusting houses in their review, but they're not necessarily um, the loveliest looking houses. 
but they right. are very, very expensive. So, you know, they're very modern. They're very polished. Like, I think there's two parts of the appeal. Part of the appeal is that they're just, it's just so strange. It's so strange how expensive they are. And it's so strange uh, the kind of lifestyle it is because it's so far removed from what, you know, houses look like in the UK yeah. or probably yeah. to be fair, the rest of the USA. The other thing that I do think is very attractive and I do love about this because this is not the case on any other reality show that I can think of is that they all have jobs. They work their asses off and they're really motivated by money, but specifically earning their own money. Don't know if it's the first Pandora. I know I'm biased because I did work on the show, but Jamie Lang was selling those sweets for candy kittens back in... 2013. And you know what? I think he's been really successful with those because I bought some mango ones in Sainsbury's yesterday. They're good, aren't they? They're really good, those sweets. Yes, they are. I think they're about 3 99 per sweet, but they are very good. <laughs> Look, you've got to be entrepreneurial. Um, tell me about your other S's. You said there were three S's. Yes, don't worry. I won't, I won't dwell on this game for long. But my other <laughs> is, I suspect it might be having a renaissance only in my own mind, is Scrabble. Online or analogue? I would normally say analogue, but I can't find my set. And so we downloaded it as an app, a Co- the Collins app. And it is so brilliant because rather than fighting over whether something's a word or whether an abbreviation is allowed, it just decides for you. Ah, that is good. So there's no rouse about it. It does also mean you can potentially cheat because it knows all the words. So a few times my husband and I have scored very well from making up what we think is making up a word, but it happens to be a word. Yeah, it sort of it enforces inventiveness on you, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But I do think as well, the more Scrabble you play, the better you get at it. So I want to start... I want to be able to graduate up from, I'd say at the moment, I'm kind of in the like house, grass category. And I want to be in like hemorrhage. Mm, Oh God, hemorrhage is a great, what are those famous ones that are really good? Hang on, let me look them up. Highest score on Scrabble. Yeah. Probably be one that uses lots of, uh, so like a Z, a Y, xylophone. No, it's got to be something more snazzy than that, hasn't it? Yeah. Jezebel, exercise, chutzpah. <laughs> I love that word. Weasley. <laughs> when you make something into an adverb, I do always think that's a little bit cheaty, isn't it? Um, mm, what else? I would be a hypocrite here? to agree with that. What do you think about pl- <laughs> what do you think about plurals? Oh, it's a bit cheaty. It's a bit cheaty, isn't it? <laughs> what about if it helps you create another word? If you turned house into houses yeah. and that created shame at the same time. Yeah, oh, God, I love that. There's no feeling like that, is there? When Let's not playing Scrabble together. Up. I bet we can do some I love Scrabble. Distance. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I really, really love Scrabble. I'm phenomenally shit at it. Yeah, I'm not I very do. good either, which is why I've decided I, I decided I just don't have any specialist skills in life and that this, it can become one of them. <laughs> well, I can't, play t- I can't play tennis. I can't play the guitar. I'm not very good at driving. I can't speak another language. I'm terrible with music. I don't know anything about flowers. So what about Scrabble? Okay, Scrabble can be both of our specialist subjects. No, guitar's yours. And, oh, mand- and you, speak, it, and you no. speak Mandarin. That is true, but I like to keep quiet about that because I don't like to <laughs> boast and make people feel bad. 
<laughs> and my third S is shagged, married, annoyed, which I know you've listened to for a while, Dolly, but I am just so tits deep in it. It's great, isn't it? It's really, really good. For anyone that hasn't listened to this, and you will have because it's the most successful podcast, I think probably of all time, it's by the comedian Chris Ramsey and his um, wife, who is a presenter, Rose, and an actor, I think as well, Rosie Ramsey. And if you have a partner, I thoroughly recommend listening to Shag Married Noise with them. It's so extremely funny and confronting. It's the only podcast that my husband and I listen to together. And I know as testified by its tremendous popularity, that we are two of many people who listen to it and feel Mm. both seen and vindicated, but at different times. And I'm going to insert a clip here, which I think might resonate with some other women out there. You keep telling me to tell you to make sure you do your exercise (laughs) later in the day. So if that doesn't make sense, dear listener, what happens is Rosie will turn and go, Chris... Make sure tonight I do me walking. <laughs> just make sure. Look, whatever I say, you just make sure I do me walking, right? And about tea time, just say it with say, Rosie, have you done your walking? And I'll say, I haven't. Just say, Rosie, do your walking. If you don't know what walking is, she basically, she might have put it on Instagram, I'm not sure. She I puts have. the laptop in front of the oven on the, fucking, on, the, on, the, on the island in the kitchen. And she watches what I can only assume is some kind of 90s... America, it's like this 90s American woman doing... So basically, any film or TV series you've seen where they go to suburbia and suburbia is about to be ruined, hence they do it in, um, they do it in Breaking Bad when, they, mm. when, you, when you see where Jesse Pinkman lives mm-hmm. and you see, oh, actually, he's this drug dealer, but he lives in this lovely suburban place with this massive house. That right. was his aunt's house or whatever. And they've always got them two women in the sweatbands, power <laughs> walking paths, going like, oh, my God, did you hear what he said? Oh, my God. I've got to pick the kids up from soccer. And they power walk off down the road. You basically watch a YouTube version of a load of twats doing that. And she's like, can you feel the burn, ladies? Yeah. Yeah, can you feel it? it? Like, literally, a couple of rooms away, it sounds like porn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. It's fucking horrible. So she does that, and it's a nightmare. When she's doing it, it's horrible. You've got to leave the rooms. It's the loudest, most ear-penetrating thing ever. But, yeah, your new thing is, make sure I do me walking. And then I go to you. Later in the day, I go, okay, I'll go for this because I'm an idiot and I'll never learn. Rosie, you done your walking? Oh, Christmas, I'm pregnant! <laughs> I'm pregnant, but I'm not gonna with child you what it's like. I'm tired, I didn't sleep, I got a pillow between my legs. I can't be bothered to do me walking. You told us you said to us, ask you to make sure you've done your walk. Oh well done, man! Leave us alone! But honestly, it's entrapment. It's a nightmare. I hate it. Stop doing it. And also, as the High Lows single spokesperson, I want to make it clear that Shag Married Annoyed is great to listen to if you're single because and I don't mean this to to sound smug I think it's very easy to think of the other of this place of long-term commitment and monogamy and raising a family together as being the place of peace and carefree cozy you know reassurance and warmth and devotion and love and let me tell you if you listen to enough shag married annoyed (laughs) you will realise that that other place that you sometimes yearn for when you're hungover on a Sunday night is uh, not as carefree and lovely and cuddly as you think it might be. It sounds pretty fucking gnarly sometimes. And not an S, but I just started last night Mrs. America. You've watched that, haven't you? 
No, I haven't, but it has been recommended to me um, quite a few times. Remind me what that's about. It's about Phyllis Schlafly, who was opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s and particularly opposed to feminist figures such as Gloria Steinem. And she was this very unusual conservative activist. And she is played by Kate Blanchett and Rose, what's her name? Rose Byrne, yes, yeah. yes. And she plays Gloria Steinem, Rose Byrne, doesn't she? That's it, yeah. Oh, yes, I'm longing to watch that. Oh, it's really good. It's really, really good. I had so many people recommend it to me and I just thought I've got to watch it. And even if you're just, obviously there's a very, very important story that's being told and it's uh, a very important political moment in history. And as I said, I'm, I'm not hugely familiar with the story to my shame and I'm only one episode in, so I'm only speaking from one episode in, but it feels like a very interesting comment, particularly now on how women can hold each other back and how we can turn in on each other and I'm really enjoying it but beyond that it's also just set in the 70s and it's great wigs great costumes great soundtrack great glasses so if you like that aesthetic it's also just a real treat to watch I love the way um, Rose Byrne wears her hair tucked underneath her glasses to play Gloria Steinem so you've got sort of like a helmet head this also reminds me speaking of Gloria Steinem she did a great episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the other day. And obviously I was familiar with Gloria Steinem's work, but it was so wonderful to hear her say, um, Elizabeth said, you've never had children. Is that something you've ever regretted? Um, And Elizabeth spoke a little bit about her own experience in that regard. She said, no, not for a second did I regret not having children. Um, And it's really... It's really lovely to hear someone in their 80s looking back at their life choices and feeling so uh, content and sure of choices that she made, you know, 50 years earlier. I agree, particularly because I feel like you so rarely hear women who haven't had children talk about the fact that it was absolutely the right decision for them and brought them as much happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction as we often hear women saying having children has brought them like I think it's so important to offer up um that alternative we've talked about this before on the highlight but I think the thing that really scares a lot of women who are frightened about not having children is is this thing about fatal regret yeah and that the, the, the fatality of that regret will seem will seem heavier than any other kind of regret or path not traveled so I think that kind of absolutism constantly sort of floating above this question of motherhood for women to try and just soften that slightly. And I think that can be done by hearing from women who feel like they made the right decision by not having kids. I just think it's a really helpful addition to the conversation. Did you know that during lockdown, Brits, I know you love that word, spent 40% of their waking hours? This is obviously in general before someone goes, I don't watch any telly at all. Um, 40% of their waking hours watching TV or online content. Uh, I don't think that's that much, actually. Six hours, 40 minutes a day. Yeah, if you think, I talk about this a lot, and I would have talked about this before on the high-low, there's this book by Arnold Bennett called How to Survive on 24 Hours a Day that blew my mind, where he says in the calculations, if you spend eight hours asleep which let's face it most people don't and eight hours working which is the sort of average working day then that still leaves you with eight 
hours free. Crazy that, isn't it? Yes, it's mad to think what we do in that time. So actually, when I look at my bad days on my phone, you know, those fucking horrible reports that you get with this like very macabre percentage of how long you've been on your phone. A very bad day for me will be six hours. So that means two hours of my of my time not sleeping or working. I've not been glued to my phone. Depressing, isn't it? Or not depressing, as you suggested. Or did you yeah. not suggest? Were you more just not surprised? I'm not surprised. Just because we're all doing it. I don't think it's... I don't think that's right. <laughs> but also lockdown was a very... Like, what else were you going to do during lockdown? Yeah, it was a box. It was a box setty time, wasn't it? Mm. I sort of can't really remember it now. <laughs> I can't <laughs> remember anything before yesterday. Speaking of statistics... And how never more people have been treated like numbers than during this pandemic. I wanted to recommend the most beautiful series for The Guardian by the writer Shirin Kale called Lost to the Virus. Doll, if you haven't read this yet, you will love it. I haven't heard of it. It's a series being done completely by Shirin. And the premise is she takes a quote unquote ordinary person who has died during the pandemic from coronavirus and writes a long read about them to show that everyone's life is worthy of storytelling, not just a famous person, and that no one is just a number, however much we read those numbers at the moment in the paper. So far, there's been Richie Dawson, a beloved dad and Liverpool fan, Josiane Akoli, a brilliant nurse and mother of five, Belly Majinga, a devoted mother and transport worker, and Doreen Chapel, who lived in an assisting living facility and who her family believes would be alive today had she not been disabled. I think what's so powerful about this series, aside from the premise itself, which is such a um, brilliant and worthy idea, is Shirin explores not just the lives of the individuals that she's writing about, but she uses them to hold a mirror up to our lives and our behaviours to the pandemic and to systemic injustice. She writes so sensitively and clearly and with rigorous research. They are as informative as they are moving and they'll make you angry and invigorated, which is the point of good writing, I think. For people feeling like they need to find something of value to hold on to, something something for posterity that can come out of what might seem like senseless tragedy um i think shirin's contributing something that does just that so i really recommend it i'm so glad the guardian has run that series i think that's such important commissioning at this time and i love the idea of a long read about people that aren't famous i think it's a really great idea there's um a writer a famous obituary writer who wrote obituaries for the Philadelphia Daily News called Jim Nicholson. And I only found out about him because he died last year and he they celebrated him on Fresh Air and Terry Gross played an archive interview with him. I'll link to it in the show notes. But he was known for writing obituaries of the everyday people, these members of the community, the members of the city, member, you know, these civil citizens um, writing about these seemingly small lives with the level of detail and attention and reverence that you get with a celebrity or a, or a person of note or a historical figure, that what you get with, the, with those obituaries. 
So it would be these kind of long formalized obituaries where he'd speak to loads of people in their life and he'd collect lots of information and really colour it with lots of detail about just these, you know, seemingly just about these, you know, supposedly everyday people. That's such a lovely idea. And it reminds me of a um, really gorgeous book I read while we were off called Dominicana by Angie Cruz, which has actually been long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. It's incredibly moving and uh, really sad, but also elements of real uplifting kind of joy in it about a very young girl from the Dominican Republic in the 60s who comes to New York with her much older husband Juan for a better life but also a better life for her family because they can get them visas during the civil war the main character Anna becomes uh, very angry and sad about the fact that people she knows and loves are dying in the civil war but then the their deaths are never making the newspapers and um, so someone says to her, OK, well, you know, give it the reverence you think you deserve. Write, write an obituary like this one in the newspaper. You know, find, they found a newspaper one about, I don't know, a senator or something like that. And uh, he said, write it like this. And she wrote a kind of fantasy obituary for this person she loved. And then she wrote the real obituary. And it was, it's the most heartbreaking thing to read you know the difference between the reverence that someone famous gets when they died compared to someone just normal and how agonizing that can be to feel like someone you loved is just like flotsam or uh fallout yeah i have for you not quite a doll's polls more an anecdotal nugget that caught my attention, which I have not been able to stop thinking about. I've had to sit on my hands for three weeks to not text you about this. Saved it up for today. Okay. In a recent issue of GQ, on one of their style advice pages, they wrote that you should dispose of your underwear every six months. I need to know, do you do this? Am I alone in thinking that underwear drawers should be purged at best every, I don't know, three years? That feels quite decadent, actually. Really decadent. That is... Quite Justin Bieber to be chucking away your pants so regularly. <laughs> I think... What do I do normally? So... Oh, you're going to be arrested by the pant police. I can hear them in the background. <laughs> well, actually, having just criticised um, that GQ advice for decadence, I think what I'm going to say is quite decadent. I now only wear underwear sets, which... Oh, my God. I know... And I didn't for years and years and years. I just wore any ratty old toot. But hold on, this and is a bit like having more bathrooms and bedrooms. You need more knickers than you do... So here's what I do. Titty holders. If I'm getting uh, an underwear set, I'll wait until it's the sale and then I'll get two pairs of the knickers. Christ, so I this can... is so organised and... I know, it's quite organised. And then I really do like... I know it's very... You like underwear. I just hate being one of those women who says, like, it's just for me. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just such a, like, I hate myself for this. I just hate myself that I'm this much of a cliche. I'm, like, two centimetres away from having a poster framed in above my bed saying, well-behaved women rarely make history. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you are a shade away from having a framed nude portrait of yourself above your bed. And I was wondering if you might have come closer to that than we think. Yes. Um, 
that is like just a millimetre membrane away, uh, that alternative life as that woman. And I look forward to it. <laughs> um, but what I do sometimes, if I get a nice black bra that I like or a white bra that I like, I'll identify <laughs> a type of knicker. Normally M&S do a really nice um, lacy French knicker. Why am I using the singular? And then I know, I'll just get. I love that. I'll I'll just get. I don't know. Seven of those every day of the week, and then that will like replicate a set. I can't believe I've gone into this much detail, but basically, I think because of that system, I probably replenish every yeah every two years, maybe a bit more. Shall I tell you something disgusting? Oh yeah, go on. Further research, I use that word loosely, led me to an article on Refinery29 by Molly Longman, which revealed that there is about one-tenth of a gram, I'm going to use their word here because it's an American article, one-tenth of a gram of poop in the average pair of clean underwear. The 2001 research from the Journal of Infection found. Yeah, but I feel like there's a one-tenth of a gram of poo on everything. Even when it's being cleaned? Yeah, surely. I feel like that's actually quite conservative. Do you? So you've got one-tenth of a gram of poop on your shoulder? I think so. Just I feel like I've read all those articles for so many years that say, you know, you're basically just always eating shit and lying in shit and you're a metre away from a rat covered in shit. I just think... That I just I feel like I've just I've had to just be okay with the fact that 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 there's shit everywhere. Don't you read those articles? I always read those articles where it's not just shit, just muck and dirt. Like we just we just animals. I think <laughs> I am quite literally normally only a meter away from shit. So yeah. I suspect. Well, that you brought you brought that you brought on that myself. on yourself, love. <laughs> but you're right, actually. Um, the one I always think of is that the palms of your hand, aren't they dirtier than a loose seat? Oh, yeah, I've heard that, that the sink of your 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 kitchen sink is dirtier than a loose seat, that, that when you eat peanuts in a pub, you're basically eating piss. Oh, man, we, just... we, no peanuts in pubs right now, though. No, I mean, look, I'm sounding very flippant about all this stuff. Obviously, this is now a very serious thing to consider, while being cautious and vigilant about germs and spreading of infection is vital for um, everyone's health and for fatalities. But, you know, speaking flippantly in a pre-COVID world, I do remember just constantly reading the... And maybe it's because I live in a city as well, so I was often reading it in those, like, London papers that, that, it's, that we're basically just in a cesspit all the time. So the takeaway from poopy shoulder alderton is buy (laughs) similar looking knickers for your underwear sets and don't worry about chucking them away every six months i'm thrilled we've uh, kicked off with the hard stuff in other news this week many teachers and pupils are back at school with a number of precautionary measures in place every teacher i know is feeling the same thing and that they've they've said to me that they're really looking forward to getting back into the classroom to teach while also understandably being very nervous about making sure that they're doing their job safely and that the school is operating safely. It must be so much to think about and a big responsibility. So massive good luck to any high-low listeners who are teachers going back this week. And less important news, from today, M&S have gone 
fully online. All their food products are now available for internet-based delivery service for the first time. Any crucial thoughts on this Pandora? I might be going mad here, entirely possible, but did we cover the breaking news story that Ocado was going to be taken over by M&S? Is that what we you're did. referring to? Is, has that been implemented? So it's no it's longer been... Waitrose. Oh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if that's true. I think maybe... Oh, maybe this is the big moment that we've been anticipating for the best part of a year. Because I remember at the time saying that I found it very strange that M&S would be a one-stop shop for a weekly shop. M&S is... It's like going to Harrods. M&S food is delicious, but doesn't it have like 10 things? I just buy a lot of best prawn sandwiches. Best prawn sandwiches. There's another sandwich I don't think I've ever discussed on the high loaf. Very surprising. Um, <laughs> the M&S do. <laughs> Called the um, egg, tomato and salad cream. Oof. I knew you'd have that reaction. It's so 80s. I bet it comes with like a puffed a puffed shoulder and a pearl on top <laughs> such a grandpa sandwich i also love you know those big bags of crisps that m&s do yeah of all the different shapes yeah and they're all really crunchy i like the salt and pepper ones yeah me too my sister buys those all the time that's a good treat oh, town. so good and there's a prawn layer salad love the prawn layer salad. yeah yeah me Cheese too layer yeah salad it's there's nowhere better for lunch there's nowhere better for lunch i think than m&s Another news story that I want to tell you about that I think might now be my favourite post-lockdown news story of just, like, trying to get my head around what the world has become in the last nine mm. months. A fight broke out on the top of Wales's highest mountain as hundreds chose to visit it over the bank holiday weekend. So because none of us can do anything anymore other than enjoy the great outdoors, <laughs> when people went to the Snowdon Summit, which is over a thousand metres above sea level. There was a huge queue of visitors waiting to go up to the top of the of the mountain. Is it not always like that though? Because I know there's um there's like a really long sticky out finger bit of rock called Trolltunga in Sweden and people queue up there to get their picture taken on the rocky oh, finger. Really? No, I think I think this is quite new. I think, I mean, that's where everyone used to do their DV expedition, wasn't it? Snowden. Yeah. And apparently there's footage, there's footage of a, of a man in an orange high-vis jacket and black beanie. He was apparently going up the summit the wrong way. He was doing, he was bypassing the queue system. And the crowd began chanting, join the queue, as another visitor blocked the man's path. And then they, <laughs> sorry, it's not funny. They grappled with each other. With the man in orange losing his footing. What? Did he fall down all of the Snowden? Well, I think it sounds things just got pretty heated. But I've looked at pictures of people queuing to get to the top of this mountain and it really does look like they're just standing outside Tesco. Such a strange bank holiday weekend, wasn't it? It was the coldest one we've had since the 80s, which felt like a bit of pathetic fallacy. And it was very odd walking around... Uh, Notting Hill and all the shops being boarded up like they are every bank holiday weekend but no Notting Hill carnival yeah but they were still boarded up regardless which was quite interesting yeah it was it was very cold it was very cold I rented a boat for my birthday yesterday on the serpentine a little pedalo 
and we couldn't get one nice picture of any of us on this boat because the sky, it looked like the Dementors were coming from Harry Potter. It was so grey. <laughs> you do, you need sunny weather in a pedalo. God, yeah. that's so great to go on a pedalo there. That's a really nice thing you can do in London. That's a nice summer date. Yeah. Swans, a cup of tea or a hot beverage, maybe an egg salad, I guess. I'll humour you on that one. An egg and salad cream sandwich and some incredibly achy thighs. Mm. Hello. Support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa, all of your favourite treatments at home. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty treatments, including massage, manicures, pedicures, waxing, hairdressing and tans. When you use Secret Spa, there's no need to ferret around the city's salons for appointments. You can book from 6am to 10pm, seven days a week, and sit back and relax while your therapist comes to you. Perfect if you're working long hours or have children at home to look after. Secret Spa works with only the best therapists and also has several rounds of assessment so you can be sure you're in safe hands. They also wear full PPE and carry out the appointment under strict hygiene protocol. And although it does make practical sense to have beauty treatments at home when the public salons are under so much pressure, it's also just such a luxury to enjoy them at home. You can have your own music playing, you can drink your own tea, you can wear your least attractive leggings and t-shirt combo. To enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, visit secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. That's secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I know that both of our short-term memories seem to have gone completely up the swanee, but can you remember anything that you've uh, read or watched in the last month, Pandora? Absolutely. I loved The Confession by Jesse Burton. Oh, I loved that book. I talked about it on the Hilo, I think this time last year, actually, in our Back to School book special. It's got all the components of everything that that I love. It had really forthright female characters. There was an intriguing love story. There was mystery. There was Hampstead Heath. There was L.A. in the 80s. It was high glamour. Loved that book. Well, as you spoke about it a year ago, which I had forgotten because of the older short-term and possibly long-term memory issues, um, I won't waffle about it for long, but... For anyone who hasn't read it and is looking for just the most wonderful novel, completely engrossing, but also so captivating and cleverly written, it's by Jessie Burton, who is 
probably most famous for The Miniaturist, which was a massive hit, sold millions of copies, and then was turned into a gorgeous TV adaptation starring Anya Taylor-Joy, which was about um, a Dutch girl in the 17th century and her doll's house. Um, And The Confession has got these twin narratives set in different um, times. There is a relationship between two women in the 80s called Elise and Connie. Elise is in her early 20s and is a little bit lost in life and is kind of um, gathered up by the incredibly accomplished and captivating Connie, who is a writer. And they move to LA together. And then kind of the dual narrative alongside this is Rose, who is the daughter of Elise, but never knew her. And she takes a job uh, under a pseudonym at Connie's house in London, in Hampstead, as you mentioned, Dolly, as her assistant. Um, but Connie doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know she's Elisa's daughter. And Rose takes the job to find out more, she hopes, about who her mother is. But it's also, as you say, about so much more than that. There's um, a lot about pregnancy and motherhood, um, both the idea of choice and how it um, changes you. Uh, Rose's best friend is about to have her second baby and there's a lot about how their kind of friendship changes in that. And there's also just so much about identity and about ambition and how uh, one woman's life, like Rose and her best friend Kelly's relationship kind of mirrors her mother and Connie's relationship. You know, there is one of them is outwardly much more ambitious and and much more successful um and she really goes into as well which is a subject i'm fascinated by the kind of idea of the fragmentation of identity and this idea of um well whether or not you're doing it right and i read this book during the heat wave and the spine cracked you know when you read it in the sun and the glue bloody melts and I just had all these loose pages and I kept hold of about I have re-bought the book since but I've just kept hold of um these kind of 20 pages which just had the most beautiful bits of wisdom on it and she's such a clever writer because it really marries the contemporary and the historic there was one bit I wanted to read because um I thought it was really impactful and I think some of our listeners might find it similarly so are you happy my dad said suddenly I looked at him in alarm. No, was the word I wanted to say. And hearing that word in my head, I felt like it was not the answer a woman of my age and good health should be giving. In the beat of my blood, in the swallow of a glass of water, in the glance of a stranger, I could see happiness. I have known happiness, but I feel as if I can taste other people's happiness much more strongly than I can my own. I couldn't have told you what makes me happy, yet I was tired of constantly trying to improve myself, to find amongst my many shitty selves my best self. Joe would just roll out of bed and be Joe, but I could not escape my failing self or the potential selves inside me. The internet told me daily that there were many routes to happiness, good yoga leggings, a scented candle, a plant we called succulent. But the internet also loosed a second message, a subliminal arrow that still breaks the flesh. By 35, you ought to have it sorted. Yeah, I loved that storyline with that character who just feels restless and she can't put her finger on why and she feels like something is missing and she feels like she's not doing adulthood correctly. It feels like such old ground to write about that, but she I've never read a character drawn so clearly. 
um, who has such a believable malaise about them, that very specific malaise. And also, it's old ground and it's cliched ground and people, I think, can be quite snobby about that ground. Like, oh, yeah, another woman who doesn't know if she's coming or going. But, like, it's common ground for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, so that's just made me laugh so much. I once got a note on a script that I sent to a producer and she said, um, the problem is, at the moment, it's sounding a bit, girl about town feels a bit fat and wants a boyfriend. And it was so withering. And in that one sentence, I realised she summarised basically my entire, not literary genre, but career and existence. (laughs) I mean, cliches are cliches for reasons, aren't they? So withering. Anyway, this book is not Girl About Town Feels a Bit Fat and Wants a Boyfriend. The Confession is glorious. It's an exquisite book. I'm so glad you read it and enjoyed it, Panda. How about you? Have you got some wrecks to share with me, doll? I do. I actually managed to get some reading done over August. I felt like I completely lost my ability to read or concentrate during lockdown. But I read a few books in August. I read 26A by Diana Evans. Oh, yeah, I've read that. I don't think I've spoken about Have it. Have you? Mm. So Diana Evans wrote one of my favourite novels of recent years, which is Ordinary People. And this was her first novel written in 2005, and it won the Orange Award for New Writers. The book is about twin girls growing up in Neasden as the daughters of a working class white English father and a Nigerian mother. And the story, and there are no, they have two other siblings as well. So it's this big family. And the story spans their childhood, adolescence and early 20s, following them from Neasden to Lagos and then back to Neasden. It's very different to ordinary people. I don't really know what I was expecting, but I was quite surprised by both the tone and the story. There's a more mystical strand that runs through 26A. Um, I mean, there's actually a bit of a mystical strand that runs through ordinary people as well. But that was more of a kind of psychological story, whereas this is you know, actually kind of more, um, how would you describe it, Panda? It is mystical, isn't it? That The way that she looks at the kind of spiritual connection between those two twin girls. I hadn't so much thought about the mystical element and I was just thinking how interesting it was that that came across so strongly for you. What I definitely found really interesting about her writing and probably more so having seen her in conversation with Zadie Smith is that there were elements because what it came out in 2005 and White Teeth was 2000 must be because it was 20 years ago and I did feel real parallels as first novels between um 26A and White Teeth which is also set in North London Yes, and also it looks at family identity and it looks at cultures, you know, clashing and blending and learning from each other through integration and marriage and raising children together. And I wonder if that mystical element of it, maybe I'm overstating it slightly, but I wonder if it might put people off. Like, I actually thought it was incredibly confident for a first novel that the book opens with a scene that is quite an extraordinary scene for a writer to open with and it's a big leap of faith for the readers. But for me, it really worked where it's these two, it's a description of the moments before these twins are born 
and these twins. Yes, okay, I'd completely forgot. You're right. There is that spiritual. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. I loved that as an opening. I did as well. It's this, it really takes a moment to adjust to it. And then you feel like the hairs stood on end when I was reading it. It's kind of looking at where we were before we existed, you know, where our souls come from. It's a comment on reincarnation, I suppose, where they were two, it begins as two frightened rabbits running after each other. And they feel a, they see an ongo an incoming traffic they see a, they try to cross a path and there's a big car that comes towards them and there's a huge impact and then suddenly they are being dragged out of their mother in the labor ward and that sounds as i said that sounds like very abstract and it's hard to take your reader there in the first pages and to and to make that feel compelling and believable but it really set the tone of the book for me very well. It felt very exciting and, um, yeah, <laughs> mystical, this word that I keep using. And the bits of the book that I actually really loved were the bits that were set in their childhood. She writes, I find childhood just so impossible to write about. I don't really remember anything before the pain of adolescence, really. I don't really remember much of being a kid, which is probably a great privilege and a good sign. Um, but she writes about the sounds and the language and the smells of childhood and, and school days and the politics of the playground. She writes about it really, really well. And it's, I mean, it's quite a serious book. It's punctuated with sadness and tragedy and trauma, but it's a very powerful book about family and twinhood and the concept of home. I actually hadn't read any other, I haven't read, I don't think, any other books about twins. Oh, actually, there are twins in white teeth, aren't there? But I, I haven't read lots about twins. And obviously, twins are a really interesting literary metaphor in terms of the split. Um, the Vanishing Half, that's got twins. Oh, yes, which is meant to be brilliant and you've loved and is on my, my to-read pile. But it's a great metaphor for this kind of duality of self and, you know, the nature-nurture debate. And you see why. It's such a lovely way, I agree, to look at nature-nurture and had, how two lives that start the same can diverge. It's um, it's fascinating. Totally agree. Mm. Mm. And also, 26A, on the back it says... Uh, it says something quite over the top, like, oh, at last, the great Neesden novel, which sounds ridiculous. But actually, <laughs> when you think about it, it is an ode to London suburban childhood, not just necessarily North London suburban childhood. But she really hones in on the detail of of that, what that upbringing is like. And if you're familiar with that area of London or you're familiar with that kind of suburban upbringing, um, you'll probably enjoy how much time she spends describing it and focusing in on the particulars of the landscape. So I really enjoyed that and I'm pretty sold on Diana Evans now. I basically know anything she writes I'm going to completely fall in love with. It's really interesting as well, isn't it, going back to when authors uh, suddenly become kind of globally successful, like um, Tayari Jones, and you go back to reading their earlier work which must be both gratifying and slightly to know devastating as well gratifying and devastating at the same time for them that you know work that they wrote a long time ago that's brilliant just not everything hits the big time that people are then going back and discovering it it must be strange but I, I hope there's a sense of pleasure as well what's the one that it's Silver Sparrow that's Tayari's earlier one isn't it that's only yes. just been published in the UK yeah which is great 
It's really fascinating doing that. I suppose that is the normal, that's probably the more normal way around, isn't it? That, you know, your debut book, your debut novel is is less likely. Although with Sadie Smith, she's probably most famous for white teeth. Yeah, she, that, that's a phenomena for a reason I think for yeah. I think it was quite unusual yeah. for a writer of her age and for for it to be a first book for it to have had such an enormous impact yeah mm-hmm. I mean she started writing it when she was 19 I think Jesus yeah but I really like I really like that because I actually I think on Instagram I did a story an Instagram story about a piece Diana Evans had written and someone, in fact, it wasn't just one person, because obviously Ordinary People was such a hit and people mm. loved Diana Evans' writing so much. I had lots of people saying, have you read her first novel? So that's how I found it, that people on social media let me know about it when I expressed such enthusiasm for Ordinary People. The and I bookstagram community. I hate that yeah, word, but, but sort I, of love it. Yeah, also the bookstagram people are just lovely. It's like such a nice corner of the internet. Um, but I really love going back and finding the books that are the kind of prelude to the books that make me fall mm. in love with the writer mm. I think it's such a, a treat to be able to find that work another book that I read in one sitting I, I can't remember the last time I did that as I said my concentration is shot to shit at the moment and I just sat down for four hours didn't come up for breath didn't come up for a glass of water didn't come up for lunch which is very rare for me is More Than a Woman by Catelyn Moran, which is the follow-up book of How to Be a Woman 10 years since How to Be a Woman was first published. And I just couldn't stop reading it. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Like the first book, it's a mixture of a polemic and a memoir. And the memoir sections of this book, for me, I think is her strongest writing yet. The book is mainly about aging as a woman but also looks at the timeline of feminism the life of feminism where we are now what's changing what's become easier what's become trickier for example there's a great section called what about men which I feel like I've been waiting for a 2020 feminist to write which is where she tries to understand why the feminist conversation as it is now is making a whole new generation of men feel so angry and isolated and irrelevant and I know that sounds maddening. And had I been younger, if I'd heard that there was a chapter in this book called What About Men, I would have gone, ugh, not interested, don't want to know anything, fuck all of them, shut up. But as I've gotten a little bit older and a little bit softer, <laughs> maybe maybe it's tolerance, maybe it's curiosity, maybe it's just stupidity, I don't know. It happens to all of us, I think. I'm now just so much more interested in what the kind of compassionate take on why do these men feel like this and what what is the answer rather than just discounting them and telling them to fuck off um because that just disenfranchises them further and they become even more and more dangerous to us so her i won't talk about it in great length because i don't want um to give any spoilers um it's a very very good chapter she talks about um the burden of care work on women that's a big theme of the book and how when you become a woman of a certain age, particularly if you have ill parents and children, she likens the the middle-aged woman to being a sort of switchboard of constantly having to take in these calls and, and kind of redirect them and give solutions. And there's this sort of question of where am I in all this? And um, she talks a lot about this idea of the sandwich carer, which um, 
is so worrying to me about the the vast majority of care work is done by women and when I say care work I mean familial care work so raising children and looking after ill parents the duty will often fall on the female children the the older female children the female siblings whatever um which means the percentage she gives in enormous I can't remember off the top of my head I think it's like in the 90s percentile in terms of the looking after of people that that women have to do beyond their job and she talks about you know how that's because we have just relied too much on this very sexist agenda that just says that women are better at it that the female disposition is somehow more nurturing um and therefore women are qualified to do it which is of course bollocks and she talks about her proposed solutions for that what she proposes is that care work whether it's raising children, your own children, or looking after elderly members of your family, that it all should be paid. It should be paid work. This is talking about, this is, you know, raising and caring for members of society, people who are going to build the society and people who have built our society. So that is serious work. That's something that Nezreen Malik talked about in our last episode before our August break, actually. Mm. Um, the idea that uh, care work isn't... Um, fight you know isn't a finance doesn't have a financial transaction and it's something I researched quite a lot actually it's something I researched quite a lot for my own book and what seemed to come out of quite a few of the um uh of quite a few of the kind of data experts looking at it is this idea that care work or the raising of children is hallowed work and so it's like it would be insulting to attach financial value you know mm. like you can't put a price on love but mm. if you don't put a price on love then that means that not only economically but politically socially and culturally you don't count that work of the woman so there's like a much mm. larger ramification to not mm. counting it financially totally and it's something selfishly i think now having just grown out of what is essentially extended childhood which is being you know in your 20s in a city as a single person and feeling like I'm moving more into a stage where I have to think about looking after people it you know it really does weigh on me and I see it everywhere I I just see women moving out of young adulthood into their 30s and 40s and beyond and this being just this default expected total it's like taking advantage taking the piss out of this supposed feminine notion like this 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 like feminine qualification which is just it's such bollocks well it's that socialization isn't it if we're socialized to think that we are more caring and more nurturing and if that's the pattern we've seen growing up and then that's the pattern that's still sold to you and I, I realized it funnily enough much more intensely when I had kids and there was just the, like, if I didn't have my children with me when I was working, you know, people were like, oh, where are your children? Like, my husband would never get asked that. There are so, I mean, God, we could go on. I know. Do you know what? Someone said this to me the other day. You just saying that just reminded me. A woman I know who has children works full time. Her husband works full time as well. She said she took her two babies for the weekend to her in-law's house and her mother-in-law was talking to her child and said, oh, where's your bottle? Oh, silly mummy forgot to pack it. 
And she said it was such a tiny moment that was totally like, it wasn't her trying to be nasty and it wasn't her trying to target her as a bad parent, but it was just so indicative of the construct of parenting that like it would never even occur to her that maybe it was like silly daddy who forgot to, <laughs> forgot to pack the bottle. But then there's like, there can be, you, you kind of, because I talk about it quite a lot with my friends, you know, we've all got like really lucky. Most of us have got really kind of, equal care work of children in our marriage but there are still there are still parts of that cognitive care work which we tend to take on as women and if you want men to take them on then you it kind of has to be an act of resistance in that you need to not do them so like I need to not pack all the suitcases for the children every time and then who suffers because otherwise you're if you're never letting them do it yeah because you've been told that you're better at it or it's just quicker to do it yourself then and I don't mean that in a patronizing way like oh let him have a go but there is you I think sometimes women can slightly be their worst enemy in that in that I'm not saying that they're choosing to take it all on all of the time I know a lot of the time they aren't being given that choice but sometimes there is a willing partner and you just have to um, relinquish some control and something that comes maybe quite naturally in order to change up that balance or that experience Mm. of of parenthood well speaking of this exact subject i just wanted to read from this section where she's talking about splitting parenting roles equally even a partner who does 40 percent of the childcare and housework who you'd think was a good guy 40%, that's nearly half, is leaving 10% of their shit for you to sort out, their trousers to wash, their kids to raise, their meal to prepare. Here's what that would look like if it were a picture. A woman pulling a sledge on which was her career and her children with her partner occasionally jumping on 10% of the time to chill. This is why, of all the things young women say, I'm into bad boys or girls, makes older women wince as hard as if they had just said, I'm into heroin. No girls do not want a bad boy or girl. If you find yourself saying that, go and get CBT right now or else say it out loud. I formally renounce all my plans for career and happiness in order to marry the wrong person and spend all my time feeling tired. Because if she wants children and a job, a woman's life is only as good as the man or woman she marries. That's the biggest unspoken truth I know. All too often, women marry their glass ceilings. It's so interesting and it is abs- it's, it's something that I'm, I'm interested in kind of uh, theoretically, but also like in my life and in my friends' lives. It's like a really, uh, really present issue um, for me. And uh, I love hearing people delve into that, but also delve into it in such a, you know, where Catelyn's so good is she takes um, really big ideas and makes them readable that sounds really stupid but it's really important no, I think to such talk about a skill yeah to talk about things in um in a way that's kind of easily uh digestible and funny and impactful at the same time and she does that really well particularly when I read an extract at the weekend from the book where she'd written about her um daughter having an eating disorder and her experience of like mental health services for young adults was absolutely devastating it's not something I had any knowledge of or experience in and it was just incredible the way she so yeah that's the part of the book that really hooked me in and it had me sobbing I couldn't stop crying at this writing it was so beautiful about raising teenage daughters and particularly navigating 
and managing and, and uh, soothing young female self-image issues and self-esteem, this generation of women who've grown up on social media and why she thinks womanhood, even in 2020, seems like such an unappealing prospect for so many teenage girls. There's a bit that I wanted to read um, that broke my heart where she's talking about her daughter who... Uh, felt like she wasn't attractive enough and Catelyn's trying to teach her about rewriting the rules of of beauty so she becomes the curator, absolutely rejecting this um, standard of beauty, very specific standard of beauty that's being handed over to us and particularly for teenage girls via all their social media channels and making a decision to become the new manager of your own beauty standards. Most of the time I wear makeup because I like colours. I want to look pretty like a garden or a seashore or a sunset. I can't see how feminism wouldn't want me to look like a sunset or Elizabeth Taylor. Feminism surely loves both Elizabeth Taylor and sunsets. How could it not? And if feminism feels like it needs one last reassurance that makeup isn't a tool to oppress women, then let us consider David Bowie. If it is wondrous for David Bowie to wear makeup, if we adore drag queens and Adam Ant and Boy George and RuPaul and Matty Healy from the 1975 coaling his eyes until he looks like a Persian prince, then it's good enough for me. In the 21st century, the best feminist argument for the magic of makeup and dressing up is that if powerful, funny, clever boys are rejoiced in for wearing it, then surely 12-year-old girls should be too. Let's try some of Mummy's MAC eyeliner, I say to Nancy. Whose eyeliner do you like? Amy Winehouse, she says. I pause for one second. Then let's Amy Winehouse you. And I draw a line across her lashes and out, out towards the freckle of her temple. And she smiles. We have decided what beautiful means. We have a vote in the system now. When the existential crisis comes to call, we could reply, not today, not in this house, not in this girl. So beautiful. That whole story about her daughter is just so sad and so uplifting and so truthful. And it just reminded me so much of those those years that girls have so many difficulties with and I applaud both of them for for letting her write about it because I'm sure that her daughter would have had a big part in it as well and I just think it's so wonderful for them to share that relationship and that story that's out Thursday the 3rd of September I am going back and reading all the Nick Hornby that I read as a teenager and didn't really understand at the time, but said that I loved. And man, <laughs> is it such a treat. I have just reread High Fidelity. Did you read High Fidelity, Panda, when it came out? I don't know if I've read it. I'll give it a go. <gasps> oh my God, it's so good. Okay, it's I'll so give it good. a go. I'm really, um, I'm really enjoying reading, um, uh, like digging into, yeah, big books that I never read that aren't new. <laughs> High Fidelity is now, rereading it, it's now shot up into one of my favourite books of all time. I just didn't really appreciate the poignancy of it first time round. And why would have I? Because it's about these like very delicate, interesting differences between men and women and the complications of relationship. And I think like no one had even snogged me <laughs> by the time I was reading it. But God, it's you are in for such a treat. You're going to love it. I know that a lot of our listeners probably are familiar with the book. So sorry to wax lyrical about something that is already been wax lyrical about for 20 years, 25 years. 
Um, but I think this is the greatest breakup novel of all time. I was astonished this time around reading it by how appalling the protagonist and the narrator Rob is. How deeply it delves into the existential psychiatric burden of commitment phobia and what that internal process of logic feels like. I've never read something that articulates what commitment phobia is so well. And this sounds like it's heavy. It's not. It's one of the funniest books I've ever read. Um, And it's so pithy. Here's a few sentences that I can't stop thinking about. He's talking about when he has his heart properly broken for the first time by a girlfriend. I lost the plot for a while then, and I lost the subplot, the script, the soundtrack, the intermission, my popcorn, the credits, and the exit sign. (laughs) 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 Do you think that sums up the madness that you have in like the six months after a really, really horrible breakup? Here's another bit that's so simple, but I found so profound. This is when his girlfriend of years and years who has been living with him, she's left him, and her mum calls... And the mum doesn't know that she's left Rob. Mrs Lydon rings a few minutes later. Hello, Rob, it's Janet. Hello, Mrs L. How are you? Fine, you? Fine, thanks. And Ken? Laura's dad isn't too clever. He has angina and had to retire from work early. Not too bad, up and down. Is Laura there? Interesting, she hasn't phoned home. Some indication of guilt, maybe? She's not, I'm afraid. She's around at Liz's. Shall I get her to give you a ring? If she's not too late back, no problem. And that's the last time we will ever speak, probably. No problem. The last words I will ever say to somebody I've been reasonably close to before our lives take different directions. Weird, eh? You spend Christmas at somebody's house, you worry about their operations, you give them hugs and kisses and flowers, you see them in their dressing gown, and then, bang, that's it, gone forever. And sooner or later, there will be another mum, another Christmas, more varicose veins. They're all the same, only the addresses and the colours of the dressing gowns change. So true, that like devastating closeness you have with a partner's friends and family and then it's gone and you never speak to them again. That's always, I think, I agree, that's always the strangest thing, isn't it, about a breakup is you don't just Mm. lose uh, them, you lose that kind of shaded area of both of your lives. It's a whole part of your world, if not for some people, most of their world. Yeah, exactly. And that just gets heavier and heavier to deal with, I think, as you get older and your lives intertwine more and more. Anyway, High Fidelity, forgotten what a wonderful book it is. I'm now just reading any word that Nick Hornby has ever written. I will buy myself a second-hand copy ASAP. Panda, any more recommendations for us? I also dug into one that came out a little while ago in 2005. So for anyone who's watching A Suitable Boy, um, which I haven't watched yet, but it's like a big BBC drama based on a book by Vikram Seth. I realised when I was combing my sister's bookshelf, which I think I've mentioned before is my favourite thing to do because she's 15 years older. So there's a lot of books that were really big when she was my age that... I missed I mean there's so many you know great books that I've missed and so that's kind of around like the early noughties time and 
I saw in her bookshelf Two Lives by Vikram Seth, which is a non-fiction book he wrote. Um, yeah, it came out in 2005 and it's about his great uncle Shanti and his great aunt Henny. And Shanti and Henny met in their 20s when Shanti came over to study dentistry from India to Berlin and Henny was the daughter of his lodger. And they were best friends uh, or close friends for many years um, and had a kind of extended friend group over the course of the Second World War. So it's a huge kind of historic novel looking at how the war affected um, Shanti, but also how it affected Henny as a German Jew and her her and their extended group of Jewish friends, but also the legacy of that. They, there's a great amount of detail, which I found fascinating, um, on letters he found from Henny to various friends about um, who she felt able to keep in her life. Like, So she, she split friends up into uh, kind of friends who made exceptions for their Jewish friends, so would still be friends with Henny despite her being a Jew, and friends who kind of actively resisted Nazism. And there's a real difference. Obviously, there's a real nuance in that. And I have read, indeed, there is a lot of literature about the Holocaust, um, and whether that's non-fiction or fiction. It was... I found really interesting to see how that shaped and um, caused tremendous amounts of trauma to Henny throughout the rest of her life and um, how her and Shanti came together a long time after they first met and what I loved about uh, and they and they live in London in Hendon so again North London um, and what I love about it is it is a love story in a way it's about how Vikram also came over from India um, in his early 20s to study and spent his university holidays with Henny and Shanti um, and he became curious about writing about them after Henny had died and when Shanti was, uh, I think, kind of 89. Um, and he interviewed him in a series of kind of long-form interviews. But it's at the beginning, you think it's going to be a love story. And I think what it did that is so powerful is it has redefined what a love story is. A love story isn't just passion and perfection and this idealized big story you know a love story isn't just a couple who everyone agrees the best couple they know the most in love couple they know they were destined to be together sometimes a love story is people that come together because there is no one else that knows each other like they know each other it can be a quiet love story and it can speak of circumstance and of obligation and of lives that work with one another and I think that's really important. I think, I don't think I've read enough love stories that are like that. At times, it's probably quite dense on the detail. I loved the letters, but you do sort of slightly learn everything that ever happened in either Henny or Shanti's life. But it's also just, oh, it's the most sprawling, amazing bit of nonfiction that's not just about um, German history, not just about World War II but also a lot about Indian history. Uh, there's, a, you know, a lot about colonialism. There's uh, quite a lot about Palestine because he also goes into Jewish history. That It's not objective because Vikram is part of the story. So at times it feels like it's a bit objective, but then obviously you have to remember that there is also an inherent bias because it's his family. But it is just the most 
wonderful book and I'm really glad I read that as his like we've just been talking about it's really nice to come to a writer's work where there is a wealth of work and that might not even be their most recent book or their most famous book but I'm really glad I started with that because I feel like I have a real sense of Vikram the writer before I now go into his very famous fiction. Yeah I'm not familiar with any of his work. You'd love this because you love memoir and this is this is a really memoiry memoir. It's sprawling. And my last recommendation for this week is one of the best stories, short stories, I think I've read. It's called Heirlooms by Brian Washington. It came out in The New Yorker a month ago and you can read it online now. It's about, it's such an interesting premise. It's about a man who, um, sorry, I think you can probably hear my toddler panting and drawing on my knee. It's about a man who spends a month in an apartment with his boyfriend's furious and frank mother, who has come over from Japan to visit her son in the US, but he leaves almost immediately to see his estranged father who is ill, leaving behind the two of them who have never met before, the boyfriend and the mother, in an uncomfortable but intriguing domestic and psychological setup. There are such huge cultural differences between the two of them and it's a very complicated relationship for uh, this slightly baffled partner to navigate and slowly they get to know each other through Mitsuko's cooking which is so evocative narratively it exists to mark the passing of their time spent together and also shows how their relationship evolves as they go to specialist supermarkets together to buy the ingredients she needs. I absolutely gobbled this story and I'm going to look out for more of Brian Washington's writing. I will link to that in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. We are so glad to be back in your ears. You can write to us at show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at Show, and you can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com where 100% of proceeds go to charity, 50% to Black Minds Matter and 50% to Freedom Charity. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, honey. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.